Hello and welcome to the Moving Curve. I'm Rukmini, a data journalist based in Chennai. Two nights a week on this mini cast, I consider one question around the novel coronavirus epidemic in India. Tonight I'm considering this one. What can UK data tell us about how we should be administering our vaccines in India? It's the one year and 111th day of the novel coronavirus epidemic in India and we are reporting 28,046,254 confirmed cases with 329,108 deaths. In the last episode I talked about the bad data on vaccine effectiveness India is peddling and mentioned new research from Public Health England the UK's health research agency on real world effectiveness of the Pfizer and AstraZeneca vaccines against the new B1.617.2 variant first seen in India As you might recall the report showed that both vaccines were effective against the new variant but the effectiveness was lower than it was against the B1.17 variant first seen in the UK and was substantially lower for AstraZeneca than it was for Pfizer but both vaccines were much more effective after both doses and the later rollout of AstraZeneca compared to Pfizer in the UK could mean that perhaps AstraZeneca is not a lot less effective but there just weren't enough people who had had enough time pass since two doses of it this could particularly be an issue for AstraZeneca because some research has indicated that it needs at least 2 weeks or more after the second dose to produce its optimal immune response This raises a number of questions for India too and to help find the answers to these I spoke to John Byrne Murdoch data journalist at the Financial Times who first broke the story of the PHE report John is someone who I've been corresponding with to ask questions and share data and he's been very generous with his time So the first question I have really is about the uh, gap between doses for AstraZeneca in particular. So right from the beginning, even from the uh, clinical trials, when that error happened and the half dose, one dose issue came up, right from then till now, I feel like uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about the ideal gap between doses. And what India has just done is sort of move in the opposite direction to what the UK has done. I think the UK has... narrowed the gap between doses and we just expanded as from 8 to 12 weeks to now 12 to 16 weeks yeah uh, of course we are at different ends of uh, the of our respective waves right now but uh, one of the things that i was not able to clearly understand is how to account for the trade off between um, how important a second dose is as we now know from the study versus the fact that as astrazeneca gets um more efficacious as more time goes by after the second dose you know how how do you weigh those two against each other then yeah i i think everyone has the same question including here in the uk and and essentially the way you just described it is what i was describing it to someone the other day which is that the calculation that seems to have been made here in the uk is that um because a longer gap gives a higher immune response in the end for people who are at less immediate risk so younger people mm-hmm. um the uk for example is is persisting with the 12 week gap um whereas it's for over 50s in the uk where the gap has been brought forward to 8 weeks because obviously there the calculation that's being made is well their their ultimate immune response is not going to be as high as if we delayed it 
but the boost that comes from the second dose will come earlier. And so I think that's probably the way that everyone is now approaching it, which is to say, if we think there is a short-term risk of, of someone being becoming infected, then if then the higher that risk, so in other words, basically the older that person, then there's more of a case for bringing the dose interval forwards. Whereas if someone is at lower risk, then it makes more sense to extend the interval and give them a higher ultimate boost, but a but but delay that boost in the in the first place. But do you think that should be then uh, modified in any way by the PHE findings? Because the uh, two dose uh, post two dose efficacy for AstraZeneca is you know, much more modest compared to the Pfizer one. But I saw that part of the explanation was that it could be that just enough time hadn't elapsed since the second dose. So given that, the possibility that efficacy might go up post the second dose, then does that need some modeling or something to then figure out what the ideal gap should be? I, I think that's the biggest question uh, overall that comes out of the PHE report. And so I, I asked the, the PHE team, yesterday um essentially yeah does do the findings for astrazeneca suggest that maybe some additional protection whether it's a third booster jab might be needed or not um and their response was they don't know yet but they but they did again emphasize that point that um that the figure of 60 percent is is well first of all there's a lot of uncertainty there because the sample size for two doses in astrazeneca was small much smaller than for pfizer um, and then, yeah, secondly, it's believed that the, res the immune response builds over time um, after that second dose. And because um, the AstraZeneca sample was smaller and, and they believe it the, the AstraZeneca sample covered younger age groups, for that reason, those people were getting their second doses in the UK later. And so less time had passed compared to Pfizer. So the way that I think about it, and this is shaped by what the the analysts on that study have said is that the 60 percent number is well well the most important number that came out of this was the 60 percent relative to the 66 percent against b117 rather than the 60 percent in isolation um because the way i've been thinking about it is before that paper came out we in the uk and and, and in india we've we've had an idea of what efficacy looks like against, well, actually, I guess, to be fair, this is less true in India, but in the UK, we've been living with vaccines against B117 for now four or five months. And so we've internalized, we've, we've got used to what that protection looks like. And so what the new information from this paper is, is not necessarily what is that level, it's how has it changed? And so for me, the key thing is not the 60 and the 66, but to say it's about 10% less effective, less, less efficacious. Um, that 60% and 66% may both change over time. Of course, I'm sure you'll have seen there's been some confusion in the UK because only a few days earlier, we had this data coming out saying that AstraZeneca two doses against, well, not specified against which variant, but was now about 90% effective at presenting symptomatic infection. And everyone's been scratching their head after that. Again, I asked PHE about this yesterday because the feeling was, well, how can it be 90% and yet also 66% against B117? And it feels to me that the, the best explanation, the sort of holistic approach here is to say, well, number one, big uncertainty bounds on this latest study because it's a small sample. Number two, they do believe that the, the protection may climb over time. 
And number three, if the if the figure in their largest sample, their largest study is somewhere in the 80 to 90% region, then with that having been based on much more data, it feels reasonable to say, okay, we don't know what these numbers are going to be exactly, but they will probably be higher than 66 and 60, maybe, for example, 76 and, and roughly 70. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's right that people are having have a lot of questions about that. But I think the easiest way to sort of get around that in the short term is just to say, we knew where we were before this paper came out. The paper shows it's 10% worse, and that's the way to think about it. From there, we got talking about what we know about vaccines and the protection against severe disease and death from B1.617.2 that they offer. The day that we spoke, this data wasn't out yet, but subsequently PHA has put out data showing that where vaccination status is known for people testing positive for B1.617.2, 73% of the cases are of unvaccinated people, 71% of hospital admissions are of the unvaccinated, and 67% of deaths are of the unvaccinated. That last number looks small in part because the total number of deaths of people who we know tested positive for B1.617.2 in the UK is quite small right now, just 12 people. Using this data, some mathematicians in the UK have shown that this implies effectiveness against severe disease of over 85% and against death of nearly 100% for those with two doses. However, we don't have separate data for Pfizer and AstraZeneca. And since we don't have Pfizer yet in India, AstraZeneca is the one we're interested in right now. In the absence of good Indian data, I mentioned to John that anecdotally, most of us in India know someone with one or both doses who got seriously ill with COVID or even died. And like a good data journalist should, he explained to me why these anecdotes are not a good place to form assumptions from. I think the tricky thing, and obviously, you know, you're, you have much more knowledge of what the situation is like on the ground in India, but my, the way I've been thinking about this from, from afar, as it were, is that in a country where you have millions of people who will have been infected and millions of people who've been vaccinated, even, even a relatively small rate of, of vaccine breakthrough, as it were, can produce very large numbers of, of even deaths, for example. So, you know, I'm just looking at the, so the numbers for the, for the UK, um, for vaccine efficacy against mortality, against death, um, before, so this is without any information about what type of variant something is, but efficacy against uh, death is probably somewhere in the region of 80% or higher. Um, but of course, that still means 20% where there might be some kind of breakthrough. And when we're talking about millions, that can mean hundreds, thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of people. So I, obviously, I understand that it's natural for any of us when we're hearing about these cases to think, well, it doesn't work. Um, but of course, there are, there are a lot much larger numbers where that we don't hear about because they haven't happened. Um, but but yeah, so I all all the data we have does point to that for any given level of efficacy against symptomatic infection, you'll get a higher level against severe disease hospitalization and a higher level still against death. And that's also just based on you know how this how the vaccines actually work. Um, there's, there's been a couple of interesting papers out recently. There was one in Nature um, roughly a week ago, which actually attempts to, to create almost a formula for mapping from effic efficacy against symptomatic infection to efficacy against severe disease. And essentially for any given level of one, it's higher for the other. And we also know that 
is, is because of the way this stuff works full stop. There is, there's a certain level where um, your immune response can fend off infection um, but but that that threshold is almost lower, whereas the amount of immune escape you need to stop yourself to stop the body becoming sick is is sufficiently higher. And because also you've then got things like the T cells, as well as antibodies, preventing you from getting sick. So I think anyone in immunology would be very surprised if efficacy is not higher against severe disease. Finally, I asked John about whether there was a Pfizer versus AstraZeneca debate in the UK based on these data. In my mind, there was also an analogy between the Covaxin nationalism we've seen here in India and Covishield nationalism, if any, in the UK. And he brought up that point too. Because India too has uh, two vaccines currently in deployment, what ends up happening is that every time there's a new piece of evidence, people try to sort of uh, re-evaluate which ones they would like to take or which ones they would like to see the government acquiring more of. So given these large differences between um, reported effectiveness of Pfizer and AstraZeneca, is that sort of conversation happening in the UK as well? In the, the, it's funny. So one of the one of the factors in this in the UK, I, I think it would be it would be naive in the UK to to ignore the fact that there has been a little bit of a sort of national pride in the AstraZeneca vaccine. Obviously, you know, scientifically that's meaningless and it's probably only a very, very small part of what's happening here. But certainly among some people, there's there's a tendency to think, well, AstraZeneca is our vaccine and therefore we should be sort of more, more supportive of it. But um, data-wise, no, I don't think there is much of that here. Um, I've got friends and family who've had Pfizer, friends and family who've got AstraZeneca. Um, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna be getting Moderna because they're just starting to roll that out in the UK over the next couple of weeks. Um, so generally I think the, the the feeling in the UK is very much a vaccine is a vaccine. The best vaccine you can have is the one that you get soonest. Um, and I think the government in the UK and the public public health teams have been very um have played a big role in that as well. That the the sort of message that has been given from the top in the UK throughout this has been vaccines are important rather than emphasizing anything about AstraZeneca or Pfizer or, or Moderna or any of the others. Over the next few weeks, I suspect we're going to get ever more useful data from the UK about vaccine effectiveness. Luckily for us about a vaccine that we're also deploying and again luckily for us against a variant that we're also battling. Thanks to John Byrne Murdoch for helping me make sense of what's come out of this thus far. Thank you for listening. This episode was edited by Anand Krishnamurti. On the next episode, a new question.